All right, tonight we're going to be in John chapter 6, okay? And we're going to be looking at Jesus feeding the multitude here in the first uh, 14 verses. You know, the book of John is different. It's interesting because of the way it reads. It doesn't kind of follow the same pattern as the synoptic gospels, you know. Um, there's less adherence to a strict accounting, chronological accounting of what Jesus did. And because of that, we do look at it a little differently as we're reading and studying. Um, one thing that the Lord really gave to John and comes to really clearly is uh, themes that he develops throughout the entire book. Uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at one of those themes, a couple of them, really. And we're going to be looking at how people uh, come to know the Lord. We're going to be looking at about Jesus being enough because we're going to see this is right in the middle of a series of different signs that John lays out proving who Jesus is and the different capacities that he deals with us as believers. And here we kind of see something that I think resonates at the very end of the book of John. In John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus is talking to Peter. And if you remember this, he's reinstating Peter after he had denied the Lord three times. And in 2017, he tells Peter, you know, if you love me, he says, feed my sheep, he tells him. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight, about, about feeding the sheep. Because in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus meets the need of a multitude. And, and in the process, he teaches his disciples how to do this. He gives them this object lesson so then they can take it and apply it in their own lives. And they, they weren't going to get it right away. They wouldn't get it even in the, in the next year and a half or so. But they would get it eventually, and they'd apply it in their lives as they go out and they're indwell with the Holy Spirit and, and go and serve him, you know. It's interesting when we look at, at this passage, we talk about how John is different than the other Gospels. This is the only account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 that is in all four Gospels. So it's unique in that way, and none of the other things um, are there. We see parallel passages for this in Matthew 14, 13 through 21, um, Mark 6. 30 through 44, Luke 9, 10 through 17. In, in this section, we see that the apostles, um, they've just finished ministering out in, in the land, going two by two, sent out by Jesus. And we also know that John the Baptist was just recently beheaded. And we know this by looking and cross-referencing this with Mark chapter 6, 7 through 27, and Luke 9, 1 through 9. And so these things have just happened as Jesus gets here um, and ministers to these people. And what we're going to see is that Jesus meets the needs, not just of his disciples and teaching them and showing them how to serve, but of how to satisfy people in their hunger and their desire, that their desires are something more than is just physical. Although the Lord takes care of those things as well. And, and this really, it, it's the center of serving, guys. Jesus, I think, kind of shows us here how we grow as individuals as, and we draw near to God as individuals while we are out there serving other people, while we are allowing people to be satisfied with God at, at our own hands, just being living in obedience. So let's read this real quick. Uh, John 6, 1 through 14. It says, Now after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. 
And then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, well, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Now one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he says to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, well, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And so we're going to look at three things tonight. The first thing in verses 1 through the beginning of 5, we're going to see how Jesus sees the multitude's needs. He's aware of them. In verses 6 down through verse 9, we're going to see how Jesus tests the disciples. And in verses 10 through 14, we'll see how Jesus feeds both the disciples and uh, the multitude. So first, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus sees their need. So look at the setting here. Um, Jesus was there, and he says he crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And like we said before, the time here is a bit indefinite. And so we do know that at the end of verse 5, Jesus doesn't just get in a boat and cross right over. And then he feeds the 5,000. So they do not follow one another. It's, it's a kind of a nebulous amount of time. People, some people think as much as a year. You know, I'm not going to quibble about times like that if it's not really specific about it. But we do know he didn't do it immediately. Now, it is important for us to remember, like we said earlier, how John wrote this gospel to show us that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, he said at the very end, John 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we see that John's being selective here in how he decides to present Jesus to us. Now, this passage is a, is a fourth in a series of seven different signs that John chose to include in his gospel. And these signs culminate with the re- resurrection of Lazarus, which is a, a big deal. You know, and it's really beautiful the way it happens, you know, just from one thing to the next to the next. And finally, he has power over life and death. And it really is nothing to him to do that. And they each show how Jesus meets the needs of life, meets those emergencies that come up in our lives time and time again. And, and so uh, when you go back and you, when you read, John, think about that. You know, let the Lord minister to you about how the Lord's ministering to people and how the way he ministered to them back then is exactly the same way he ministers to us. Those things never change. He's consistent. And so in terms of Jesus' ministry here, he's been serving for a while. But what we're going to see is this section in chapter 6 is it begins a turning point for Jesus. Uh, up until now, there's been these large crowds that have been following him around. And we're going to see that near the end of the chapter, moving into 7 and 8, that these crowds begin to thin out. We're going to see that the authorities who had been opposing him get more vigorous in their opposition, that they start to um, set out plots, you know, that Jesus rest- uh, um, confines his movements even in response to their plots and their opposition. 
And so if things start to change a bit here. So he's a rock star up until this point with all these people following him around. And, and that will change. I think that kind of happens, though, huh, when you say, you know, I'm the bread of life. You know, you, if you don't eat, eat my flesh, people are like, whoa, what's going on? You're nuts. And, and then they decide not to show up. It's almost as crazy as saying, hey, we're sinners and we need salvation. You know, you say that and people don't like that part of the gospel, do they? People react adversely to that. But thank God that the Lord tells us that or else none of us would be here. Uh, so Jesus, he crosses over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he does so in an effort to seek solitude. In Matthew fourteen thirteen, it tells us that when Jesus um, had departed from there by boat, he went to a deserted place by himself initially. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot uh, from the other cities. And again, in Mark six thirty one, it says that Jesus said to them, Well, come aside by yourself to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And so Jesus kind of, he was trying to get away. And he had done this at different times in his ministry, remember. So this isn't um, without precedent. It isn't uncommon. And so the Sea of Galilee, I think it bears um, some note here, since John saw fit. It, it was also called the Sea of Tiberias, so we need to understand that. And we know this uh, was because Herod Antipas had built a, a capital of his own called Tiberius, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so that was the second name by which the Romans called it. And so John is you know, telling us exactly where things are at here so we'd know uh, where to look, I suppose. And Jesus took his disciples there to the eastern shores, and he's in a town uh, called Bethsaida here on the eastern part, which coincidentally is also where, uh, where Philip was from. And there's two Bethsaidas, by the way, if you weren't aware. There's like a west and an east. Because he was on the eastern part. So if you look at your map, it's the one that's on the right side, up near the top. Okay. Now, as Jesus gets there, of course, we know that the solitude uh, plan doesn't really work. It says that a great multitude of people um, chase after him because they had seen him perform these signs and, as he healed people. And it's, this, it's exactly what it sounds like. This throng of people just had gathered together. And it's interesting when you start to look, dig into what a multitude is, it really is specific about the fact that these aren't people who gathered together for this purpose. They just all ended up there. And it's this casual collection of people that show up and they're drawn to him, which is really a, a lovely picture of what happens with Christ. And so you have these thousands of people following Jesus. And in fact, in Mark 6, it tells us that the people actually ran there to meet him when they saw that he was in the boat and he was going to the other side. They booked it all. They did an end around to go catch him, which is, was pretty, pretty intense that these people were that committed to following Jesus. But that these people were there, it tells us, because of the signs that Jesus performed, the, these miracles that uh, demonstrated who he was, that proved that he was the son of God. They were evidence of it. And that's what the word sign means, not a token of the legitimacy or the authenticity of something. And in this case, speaking of miracles and wonders. And so the people had seen Jesus healing. We saw this in, in chapter 5 and before how Jesus started to do this. And, and people saw some significance in, in, in these miracles. You know, because they understood these things testify that this guy isn't like the rest of us. He's not like these other people who claim to have authority. He does things differently. And that's important because that's what it's all about. You know, we come to him because it's different. Because we understand that there's power there that goes beyond anything that we're going to find anywhere else in this world. And we understand that and, we're, and we, we respond to it appropriately. 
You know, Jesus was uh, healing people of these infirmities of Mark 4. It said that his fame had spread throughout all Syria because of what he'd done. It says they brought to him all kinds of sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and, and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So there's these people just gathering and gathering consistently because they heard, well, there's this Jesus guy over here. And they just start showing up. You know, it's kind of interesting. We live in this digital age where people instantly communicate, right? And so they text and then they show up places. Like I work with kids and kids do this with each other. They're always talking. It's, it's amazing. Um, Something happens at at 8.30 a.m. and by 8.45, they all know about it. It's just, it's instant. But it wasn't quite so quick back then. There was this thing called word of mouth. And people had to actually talk to each other and see each other and say, Jesus, guys, over there, you're nuts, you know. But it's always interesting interesting when I think about why people follow Jesus. Because there's a lot of different reasons. How people end up sitting there in a study or at a church. There's a lot of different reasons. Things that will probably surprise some of us. Things that maybe would take some of us aback. Maybe reasons that we wouldn't agree with. Well, you shouldn't be there for that reason. But you know, as a church, we, we know that people are drawn to Christ for different reasons. But the reality is that our responsibility is to direct them to the gospel Christ as that's the only real reason to follow him. And I think as people showed up here and they're drawn to Jesus, he's demonstrating who he is and how he works to them. And they're understanding that. And in the middle of all this, he's working with, with his disciples saying, see, this is, this is how it works. Where people might come on Pentecost and think you're nuts and drinking wine at 9 a.m. in the morning. And then you get the chance to go ahead and correct them and tell them, no, this isn't what happened. Let me tell you what's happening. And then people are going to get saved. Hmm. See, one thing that a, a lot of people tend to do is, um, or a lot of people tend to get, is that Jesus can take care of their needs. They hear about this, that Jesus cares about them, and he wants to do things for them. People are drawn to that. And that's fine. That's fine. But as we grow in Christ, we understand that the spiritual needs are the ones that we really need taken care of. And those are the first things that we look for. And we're thankful that he takes care of those things. And all the other stuff, that's awesome too. And, and we lift those things up knowing that he's going to do what's best for us. So Jesus is surrounded by this throng of people. And he said he went up on top of the mountain. And he sits there with his disciples. You know, He had wanted to teach them something. And he's going to teach them. Maybe not in the way that we would think. But he teaches them. In fact, in, in Matthew 14, 23, it says that... Uh, after um, he fed the 5,000, he even went further up the mountain and he spent some time praying. You know, He finally got away and, and spent that time by himself. And so Jesus is going to teach the disciples here by showing them what to do. And is there any other way, really? I mean, it like, it's really is one of the best ways to learn anything. Just getting your hands in there and doing it. You, know, you can tell somebody how to rebuild a carburetor as much as you want until they see that thing laid out. Uh, on a piece of cloth and they got to put it together, <laughs> then they'll start to really know the intricacies of that. And uh, Jesus, you know, uses a variety of situations to teach them. And that's just the case in our lives, where God uses the variety of situations that we are in 
to speak to us. That as things are, if we encounter things in our life, that God is using those to refine us, to shape us, to direct us in different ways. And we have to be sensitive to that as believers. We have to see the opportunity that exists in each of those situations daily. And so as Jesus is, is, is gearing up here, it gives a little point of order here in verse 4, that this was near the, uh, the Passover feast, which we know is in the spring, uh, early March. Um, we do know that Jesus kind of avoids Jerusalem for a little bit there in John 7, 1 because of some of the changes that were going on, the way that they were uh, opposing him. And Jesus takes note of these people. And, and notice the way that he responds here in, in verse 5, that he looks at them and, and he sees them. And we have to do a little bit of cross-referencing because he sees these people that are following him. But it tells us in Matthew 6.34 and in Matthew 14, Mark 6.34, excuse me, in Matthew 14.13, they both say that when Jesus saw them, it says that he had compassion on them. He loved them. Because they were all there. It even tells us that they were there as, as sheep without a shepherd. Just spread out over those hills. It also says that when he saw this, he didn't just look and say, oh, it stinks for them. But he did things for them. It said he spent the day healing them. He took care of their needs. He took care of what they came for. And it's interesting because all of this, Jesus seen and, and coming face to face with, with people in the incarnation, it's all part of God's divine plan of salvation. How, the, how he would take human shape and live here among us and see what it is, you know, in an experiential way that we can then see, tangibly understand, that he knows the things that happens in our lives. That he knows the difficulties and the extremes of, of a human life so that we can never say, well, you don't get this. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says something interesting about this whole thing. It says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that his mercy is in some part due to his experience. God has always been merciful. Don't get me wrong, but that it seems to imply that there is some something added there, something that the Lord used. And if nothing else, it demonstrates it to us, I think, in, in, in living color. And compassion wasn't a one-time thing for Jesus. It was, it was a way of life when he saw people in need. He had compassion here, the 5,000. We see that later on he would have compassion on the woman at the well. It tells us that he wept with Mary and Martha. When Lazarus had died, tells us that he weeps over Jerusalem, you know, just before the Passion Week. And it's this continual thing, the sensitivity to the needs of others that I think instructs all of us. And that all of this is happening in the middle of Jesus going and getting away, crossing the sea to get away from all of these people. Going to be by himself. And then they show up at his doorstep and he doesn't tell them, get the heck out of here. Which is probably what I would have done. There's just limits. <laughs> There's a line I got to draw. And, and he doesn't do that. He meets their needs despite all of that. He took the time for that. And that's such an example for each of us as believers. You see, how often do we feel tired or, or rushed or that we're distracted by things? And, and then God says, no, you need to do this for me. You need to serve this person. Or you need to take care of this need for that other person. And we push back against that sometimes. And we shouldn't. See, our focus is not on us. As believers, our focus is on others. Our focus is on serving. 
is on making sure that the Lord can use us in the lives of believers and non-believers alike. Because the reality is that focusing on ourselves is very rarely a good thing for us. If anything, it becomes more distracting. You know, as a kid, and I remember uh, summer vacation, I didn't have a lot to do. I was a latchkey kid. And, and you just, you, you're maybe a little young for that, but you know, your parents leave you there. You're, you're by yourself, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so you're stuck there by yourself all day. And before you know it, it's 2 p.m. You haven't done a single thing. You're bumming around your PJs, you know, probably haven't brushed your teeth, and you think I should probably eat something. I'm hungry. And and I think it, it's a perfect picture of what we tend to do when we're just all about us. Because you're all about, well, what am I gonna do to entertain myself? What's on TV? Are any of my friends around? Uh, what, what else can I occupy myself with? And hey, that doesn't stop when we become adults. I mean, the world is continuously tempting us to be about us, to look for things that are fun to do, things that will give us this little thrill, this little burst of emotion, and there it is. And, and we have to guard against that. How are we sensitive to the needs of others? And even more so, like Christ, are we heartbroken over other people's needs, over the difficulties that other people encounter? Because sometimes it's hard, right? And we got things going on. Well, we're busy. We got we got people in our own household we got to look out for. Whatever it is, but we need to be about other people. Do we look to bless others whenever it's possible? We should be looking out, and that th- that's only something that's that we can do in the power of the Holy Spirit, guys. It's not something that we do just because we want to be good people. I always I always flip out when I see people that aren't Christians doing like good things, nice things, and I think. I wouldn't be doing that if I was in the world. I wouldn't do, that's a waste of time. As a believer, sometimes I think that. And the Lord has to slap me and say, stupid, wait, you better change. The disciples weren't any different. You know, Jesus' actions are in direct opposition to his disciples. In fact, in Luke 9, 12, it tells us that they told Jesus, well, just send them away. Get rid of them. You know, I mean, they even told the kids to get away, right? They had no problem about that. But Jesus puts the problem, in fact, to the disciples we see here in, in how Jesus tests the disciples in the second part of verse 5. Notice he speaks to Philip here. And he says, he tells Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So see, he identified the problem, right? And then he poses it right to them. What are we going to do? How are we going to feed these guys? Now, now Philip... We don't know a lot about Philip. Um, we do know he was the, the first apostle called by Jesus himself. And we see this in John one forty three. We do know that Philip, when he knew who Jesus about Jesus and was called, then he went and grabbed his buddy Nathaniel and brought him over, and Jesus fried his brain you know, right after that. But we do know that the Lord speaks to Philip here to test him. The word there in the New King James is to prove, and it's to test for the purpose of knowing the quality of what one thinks or how one is going to behave. And that's not a negative thing. It's in, it's in a good way. Okay, So it's not that Jesus is not trying to play gotcha at all here. But to show them where, where he's at. See, he wanted Philip to see that, Philip, these things aren't things that you handle in and of yourself. They aren't things that you're going to understand how to do. 
the things that you have to come to me for. It's impossible to feed 5,000 people when you have no food. It doesn't work. You see, I think based on their experience with Jesus, they should have been able to come up with the right answer here. And Philip's not the only one, all of them. I mean, they had seen Jesus healing all these infirmities. They themselves have been sent out to minister to people. And yet when Jesus asks them this question, they don't say, hey, well, you heal people, go for it. They say like, well, I, I, I don't know, we can't do this. You see, are we as believers, are we following Jesus' example in our lives? Or are we just seeing and not putting it into practice? Because sometimes, I don't know about you guys, I catch myself doing that. Where you're reading and filling up and you're just you're getting fat as a Christian. You're just taking stuff, but you're never doing anything with it. And we gotta put it into practice. We gotta live it out. You know, if nothing else, we're we gotta be looking at these gospels and seeing how how we can go out and minister to people the same way that Christ did. Of course, Jesus does this, it tells us, knowing what he was gonna do. So he knew the end from the beginning, but he wanted to show them. And show Philip and the disciples what was going on. So he brings a situation into into their lives. And says, now I'm going to teach you guys through this. In the same way that he works in our lives. Sometimes something's dropped right on our laps. And we don't know what to do with it. And that's our opportunity to take it to the Lord. To see what the Lord wants us to do with it. And we don't do this out of laziness. We don't do this because we don't want to decide. We do this because we want to do it in the power of his spirit. We want to make right decisions. We want to honor him in the things that we do. That's why we, we take it to the Lord. So don't mistake that because it seems that some people you know, use Christianese and say, well, I'm going to pray about it as a way to just ignore things. That's not the way to handle things in our life at all. But the Lord brings things and he challenges us. You see, how do we react when we encounter those challenges and those tests in life that the Lord brings to us, expecting that we're going to do well in Him. And, you know, we pray that, that you're not overtaken by the situations in life, that you don't let them blind you to the reality of things, but that rather you would see each one of them as an opportunity for you to grow, for you to allow the Lord to use you in that situation. You know, when that Jehovah's Witness knocks there at 8.30 in the morning on Saturday, and you're like, man, I went to bed way too late to be talking to this guy. And maybe the Lord brought that guy there, or girl, they send girls out now, okay? Um, it, just for you to share with them. Even if it's a, as simple as we don't believe in the same Christ. And see what happens. Someone will engage you. Someone will just say, oh, never mind, you're one of those crazy Christians, you know? And they don't want anything to do with you. But we have to take opportunity when it's there. That when, when people you know, notice that you prayed over your meal at work, that you're willing to share with them. Even if it means you don't finish all of the sandwich. As Philip's answer is one that's born just out of, out of his own resources. Notice here in verse 7. He says, well, 200 denarii is in worth, is, in worth of bread isn't enough to feed all these people. See, Philip only saw the impossibility of feeding the multitude. He had no answer. He only saw the problem. It's a lot of bread. 200, it's 200 days of pay. That much bread. You know, no small amount of money. A lot of times we're just like Philip, though, aren't we? We, we can identify the problem. Well, the problem with that is... <laughs> Whether it's in some, we're really good with other people, right? But even with ourselves, we'll say, well, you know, this is, it's obvious. Any fool can, can know that. And like, what did you, I don't know. 
you know, we need to uh, see and understand that we can't take care of these things. And as believers, that's a good thing. We come to God because we understand that we can't take care of things, right? We understand that there are things that are just bigger than us, much bigger. And we come to the realization that just about everything in life is probably too big for us, you know, outside of Christ. We shouldn't only see man's reasoning in things, but we should see what God can through, do through us in the power of the Spirit. We need to look at things with the mind of Christ, yeah? We need to see how the Lord would, would want to do things in us. You know, the apostles, they, uh, they don't quite get it here either. I mean, even after he feeds them and all this stuff happens, um, it says that in Mark chapter 8, afterwards, when there was 4,000 people, there that were hungry. They also told Jesus to send them away. <laughs> so they, they didn't quite get it yet. It wouldn't be until much later I think they really got it here. So uh, he didn't do a good job. But Andrew didn't either. He goes to Andrew and, and says, well, what about you? And Andrew says, well, you know, there's a kid here with five barley loaves and two small fish. He says, but eh, what does that matter? Does that, that doesn't do anything. It just is, it's insignificant. See, Andrew didn't believe that the people could be fed, especially with such limited resources. He said, well, this is all we've got. That's, that's the best we can do. Hmm. You know, the answers for life's difficulties are almost never in our own resources. You know, I wonder how often we, we go ahead and we handle things in our own resources and just scrape by when the Lord would have such a better thing for us if we just let him if we said hey you go ahead and take this uh, uh, let's see what you do with it instead of us using our own talents or our own abilities you know the answers for life are in him hmm. you know Andrew doubted the Lord he didn't believe that he could do anything with that it's like when, when I hear people, and some people say this genuinely, not everybody's just putting on airs, when they say, well, how the Lord's, how's the Lord going to use me? Some people are legitimate in that. The Lord's going to use you. If he can make five loaves and a couple of fish, enough to feed 5,000, I think he can use you. You know, if he can use, and they were so fond of the Balaam's donkey illustration, you know, but it's so true, right? I mean, if that happens, what are we? You know, do, do we really believe that as we take things to God, he wants to handle them? Do we really believe, like it says in the book of James, that that effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much? Because if we do, I think we're going to spend a lot more time on our knees. We spend a lot more time taking things to him. The apostles did eventually learn. In fact, I think it's demonstrated in Acts. If you remember when the Hellenists came and complained, saying, hey, we don't have enough, enough to eat. And they handled it in... In the best way, they don't say, hey, we're going to do it. They say, hey, you know what? And they let the Lord take care of it. So you guys pick out seven people full of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord worked in it. And a good chunk of those guys end up doing awesome things and going on and being evangelists and martyrs and things. And Because the Lord was working through them. Because they did not do things in and of their own resources. They allowed God to do it. See, whatever small amount of talent or time we have to give to the Lord, we need to make sure that we give it to him. And then we see what he does with it. This is all I got, God, but see what you do. And then he's going he's gonna to blow you away. You'll be shocked. 
It always amazes me how little effort we put sometimes, I put sometimes, into being faithful. And then the Lord just is so good. And it's neat because in His graciousness and mercy, it breeds more faithfulness in our part. And it's exactly what He would have. Thank God that He does those things. You know, we need to be open to that. So do we go ahead and allow Him to do these things in our lives? And not be like, the, like these two apostles and the rest of them that try to shoot people away or didn't really see how God can do this. But in verses 10 through 14 here, we see how Jesus ministers not only to these disciples here in the middle of this, but he ends up feeding them as much as he feeds the 5,000 people. If you look here in, in verse 10, he makes preparations to feed the people there. I love how simple it is. He just tells them, make the people sit down. He doesn't give them all these instructions, does he? Just sit them down. You're going to see. Okay. It's like when your dad told you to go do something when you were a kid. And you didn't do it right. And then he came up and he said, Here, let me do this. And then they make you sit there and watch. They don't let you go off, right? And you have to sit there and watch. <laughs> and then you learn as you're seeing it done correctly. You know, Jesus placed these people in order, of course. And has them as he sits down on the grass. It was, it was the springtime, so things were growing there. And it says that there was tons of people here. It says that as they sat them down here, there was 5,000 of them. And by the way, notice what it says there. It says that the men sat down and their number was 5,000. So we're talking t- well over 10,000 people. Some think as high as 30,000 people all across this mountainside. At, that's crazy. That's an arena. And they're all there hungry. <laughs> You know, it says in other Gospels that when Jesus told them to get or, uh, put in order, it says that they put them in, in ranks. This is in 50s and, and in 100s. And he, st- and he laid them all out. You know, the, the magnitude is important. It's not just something to kind of go like, whoa, it's a lot of people. You know, But it is to show how God handles these needs that are humongous. And they are easy for him to handle. See, our God is big enough for anything. He cares about the big and he cares about the absolutely minuscule things in our lives. And he's big enough for both. You know, there's this song I I love where it says, the space in my mind is too small for you. And I think, wow, that's true. It's not because my mind is small. I rather fancy sometimes that it's large. But we can't conceive of all the things that God can do for us, that God wants to do for us. And that we need to allow him to do those things in and around us and through us. Jesus here, he takes action himself. It says in verse 11 that he took what was there. He used the, those loaves and those fish. And it says that he took them and he broke the bread and he gave thanks and, and blessed them. You know, Jesus was always really good at pointing out that the things that he did were because of the authority given him by the Father. That it was through the power of the Spirit that these things happened. And that's for us, so that we can see that these things aren't just for Christ, but they're for the rest of us. But uh, it points out even the, the bigger idea that all our sufficiency is from the Father. Everything comes through Him. See, and it's cool that as Jesus sits here and He, he breaks this bread and blesses it and passes it out, this is something I'm sure the apostles had seen innumerable number of times all the way up until he did it for the last time right at the last supper 
And they must have thought, wow, it must have just blown them away later on. They thought all those times, you know, he was showing us the way he was going to handle things. You know, sufficiency is found in the hands of Christ. See, in what ways can we each rely on God's provisions for our lives? How can we do a better job of that? I'm not here to offer suggestions, by the way. I, I don't know what things you need to give to the Lord. You know those things. But what is the Lord asking you for? What does the Lord want you to say, hey, just take this, Lord, and, and you, you do with it what, what you want to do? You know, Jesus uh, wants us to acknowledge uh, his ability to provide for us. I mean, even think about the Lord's Prayer, that we get things by him. You know, even from, the, it doesn't matter if it's the daily bread that we eat, but that the Lord is in that in fact, even later on in this chapter, Jesus is going to tell them that, that he himself is the bread of life. He's the source of these things. He says, come and get it. I, I can give it to you. you know, I can take care of you. We are Christians, but are we really putting our hope in him entirely? Or are we holding little bits of it back? Because we're, we're sometimes very good at, at just carving out the slices that are easy for us to give to him. And the other things, we kind of withhold it because, you know, it's not a glaring thing in our lives. So we kind of, we keep it right here for ourselves. Because all these miracles, guys, uh, the only reason they exist here is to direct us to God, to show us his character as he deals with us and as as he wants to deal with us, as he wants to speak to us and, and minister to us and minister through us. Because... The reality is that his desire is to help us in all the needs. And that the needs that we have, they don't end. They don't end. You don't stop needing to eat. You got to eat to live. You don't stop having things come up in life. They keep coming up. But we take them to the Lord and we let him continually deal with those things. And as we do so, we're blessed and we're growing and we see the Lord working in us. And thank God that he does. And as Jesus, he, he doesn't just, you know, make a whole bunch of loaves overflow and stuff and make some kind of crazy cartoon thing happen here. But he allows the disciples to have a part in all of this. As it says, he gave the loaves to them and they gave it to the people. He says, you guys go, go do this. And in fact, uh, we, we think here that the miracle really happened as the apostles were handing, handing it out. You know, as they went and gave it, it just, it just never, it never decreased, you know, it just was there. People just kept getting and getting and getting until they were filled. And that's where the miracle happened in their hands. That's a pretty cool thing to think about, huh? Pretty cool thing. I always flip out when I'm reading Acts and I, you know, I think about, you know, Peter or John or Paul and they're running around, the, they're healing people, you know, they're, people want to lay down and hope their shadow passes on them. Like, I, I got healed, you know, and stuff like that. But that's what, how the Lord uses us, you see. Like, that's the way gifts work, Right? It's the Lord working, working in us. And that miracle, so to speak, happens as we submit to him, as we just live out in obedience. That's what these disciples were doing. Jesus said, hey, pray, broke it here, take it. None of them said, hey, wait a second, Jesus, that's stupid. They got that out of the way earlier. You know, they, they went here and, and they did what he said. Of course, he did the real work. And that's a good perspective to keep, isn't it? You know, it tells us in the New Testament that we're all just vessels. And, and that's the truth. That's the truth. 
We, we just are the conduit. And I think we can all be that. That doesn't sound quite so hard as I think our flesh wants to make it out to be, huh? If we just let ourselves be what God wants us to be. And it's such a blessing to have a role to play. Have a role to play in each other's lives, really. Because as believers, as a church, we exist to edify each other first and then to draw other people in. And we get the chance to grow each other, to sharpen one another, to exhort each other, rebuke each other, all the things that we're called to do for one another. It is a totally awesome thing that the Lord says, you go ahead and you do this. And so then we have to ask ourselves, do we seek those things out? Are we being busy about our Father's business? You know, do we go ahead and do we follow the role that God has for each and every one of us? Do you know what you've been called to do? Have you asked? Are you being active about things? And if you know, are you really engaging with things faithfully? Are you really following through with things? Or are you just kind of, you know, flying by the seat of your pants and hoping? You're like, well, you know, if I go to enough Bible studies, they'll think I'm serving. And, you know, what, what anyone thinks here really doesn't matter. I mean, who cares? It doesn't matter. Hmm. You know, when we're over there with the youth, we often tell the kids uh, about knowing how and where God wants them to serve individually because we want them to get active. We, we want them to start getting their minds off of themselves and, and onto others, you know. And the reality is, as, as adults... We need to be the ones to set those examples for them, don't we? They need to see that in all of us. So then they don't do the classic teenage thing and say, well, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites, right? They'll say it anyway. They'll say it anyway. But that it's not real when they say it to us or think it of us. Because we know that we are faithfully serving our God. You see, our effectiveness, the increase, it, it, it all comes through him and through his resources. And the apostles here, they, they were learning that, even if it would take a while, in just a simple act of obedience, the simple act of doing what he did and just doing what he said and then allowing Jesus to do the rest. Hmm. Notice it says that as this happens here, that the, the people, they not, didn't just take a little bit, it says they took it as much as they wanted. They got seconds and thirds. You know, when we're at these, at these retreats with the kids, man, seconds and thirds are a big deal, let me tell you. Those boys, they, those of you that have teenage boys, you know. You know if you, or if you've had teenage boys, or if you've got them, they're about to be teenage boys, they eat like nobody's business. These people, they got as much as they wanted. No limit at all. And the Lord just kept making it happen, just kept going. You want some? Here you go. Here's some more, man. And then once it's all said and done, Jesus said, well, you know, let's, uh, let's take up what there is. In verse 12, he says, go and gather up the fragments just so that nothing's lost. We don't want to waste anything. And so he sends them out. And it's amazing because they go and they gather from everything. And it's so much more than they had to begin with. And I think the real big thing is as the people are taking that they were completely filled, that they were satisfied at the hands of Jesus. And, and that's what it's all about. You see, that's a picture of, of how we need to be in him. That we need to be satisfied in, in him. Because the reality is that God does 
satisfy completely when you let him. When you let him. He is our all in all. You know, the problem occurs when uh, we either don't believe that he's sufficient or when we decide that, that we know better or that what he has is nice, but maybe this thing would be just a little bit better. You know, we see different people throughout Scripture get this kind of uh, attitude. I think the Old Testament's a, a good place to see this. When you remember that Israel's out in the desert, and they got a little bit tired of the food, and they said, we want some meat. And they started complaining, and God said, all right, I get some meat. And he gave them quail. And the way he talks to them is nuts. He, you know, I'm going to give you quail. To, it comes out of your nostrils, right? And it's like, whoa, <laughs> that is scary. And then they ate it, and it said it just turned to worms and nastiness in their mouths as they were eating it. It's just awful. When we're not satisfied with what God has, huh? When the Lord gives us what we want, God help us if he gives us what we want. And we end up like Israel, and we say we want a king, and we end up with Saul. And we're like, man, did we really mess up? Hmm. You have to be careful. So the result here was that Jesus expanded things so much here in verse 13. Then there were 12 baskets of fragments uh, of the barley loaves. Uh, the other gospels say there's a little bit of fish thrown in there. That sounds a little nasty, but there were 12 large baskets. And they're, they're big baskets, it says. It's kind of real specific with the way it's describing the baskets. In fact, if you want to get real technical, the baskets that it talks about when he feeds the 4,000 are actually smaller baskets than the baskets it talks about when he feeds the 5,000 here, if that matters to you. But... Uh, there were a whole lot. And that's really what the Lord does. There's so much more that we end up with than what we started with. Things are, are so much better. God gives the increase for these people. And, and it reminds me of, of Elisha. In Second Kings chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 7, he deals with this woman who hardly has any oil left. And she says, you know, Elisha, I, 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 you know, this is the thing. And we, this is all the oil we got. Left. He said, you know what? Gather all the oil from everybody and pour, pour it into your... Your, your little vessel there, and then gather all the empty vessels, you know, and just start filling them all up. And she does it, and says, they're all filled up. She says, well, we've got no more vessels here. She says, all right, there you go. And it's just enough. And the Lord does these things. Hmm. It's a pretty cool God that we serve, huh? That he can do this, and, and they expect it in a way. And we can expect it. In Ephesians uh, 3, verse 20, it says this, 3, uh, 20 and 21. It says, Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus in all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I think that's the right attitude to have when the Lord is working, when the Lord is doing things, that it's because of him. He does all these things, and he's the one that gets the honor. You know, the, the disciples didn't walk around high-fiving each other after this. I mean, if they did, I think Jesus would have scolded them. But we really should thank God for us having the opportunity to be used. As much as we should thank God for, for saving us, which is the context here in, in Ephesians, you know, that God does all these things. Because if he can save us, he could do all that other stuff. He really can. We should thank him for the works that he's doing, even in the lives of other people around us. That we would praise the Lord. Say, thank you, God. 
and that that would minister to us. And so then, how do we as believers, how do we have this attitude on a daily basis? What, what do we do to kind of breed this mentality? I think we have to put it into practice, right? Uh, look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25 say this. There's one who scatters yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. You know, what are we doing with the things that we have? Are we using them well? Are we available? Are we open? You know, this isn't just confined to stuff or to money. It, it, you plug in what can fit in there. You apply it in that way. You know, and as we go and serve here, are we relying on God as we serve him? Do we make sure that he's the center of the things that, that we do for him? Because it has to be that. If we do it for any other reason, then it doesn't do us any good. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8-9, he's talking to Corinthians about serving, and he tells him this. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad and he is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. It's all in him. He is the one that does it. So we need to go to the well. We need to draw from that. You know, we need to pray and pray some more. And, and strive to stay in the spirit. Because we have access, we have access to riches that are beyond our imagination. Philippians 4.19 tells us, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Because that's where we're at. That's the God that we serve. It wasn't just something that existed in the times of the New Testament writers. It's something that persists through today and will continue to persist. You know, do we give from our spiritual abundance, from the way the Lord has ministered to us, the way the Lord has spoken to us, that's why we serve the body. And that's why we go out and we serve people out in the world. To be able to demonstrate what the Lord has done in our lives. Not in some kind of selfish or proud way, but in a truly humble way. Knowing that it's, it's God who's done the things that he's done in us. It says here that the people had the, this kind of epiphany here. For them, anyway, it says that when they had seen what Jesus did, they were like, well, this guy's the prophet supposed to come into the world. You know, this, is, this whole thing was, to them was a testament of Jesus' identity. Truly, it is an, a testament of his identity as Christ. Okay? But the people, when they saw Jesus, they thought he was the prophet that's spoken of in, in Deuteronomy 18.15, where the, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Which, of course, we do know Moses was talking about Christ. They weren't quite thinking of it in that way. Um, the people were still thinking of, of this Messiah in the same way that the Pharisees thought of the Messiah. In so much as it would be a political Messiah. Okay, and that's where they were coming at it from. But they saw this guy as something. He, he's it. He's, he's the one. He's the guy that we should be following after. And they react, I think, in a kind of a logical way. If this is what they believe, it tells us in, in verse 15 that they try to force him, grab him and take him by force to make him king. <laughs> well, that's the guy. Let's go get him right now. He's going to lead the rebellion and he's going to establish us. Let's get after this. Why are we waiting? Hmm. 
You know, in, in Luke's account, it's interesting. After all, after all this, um, Jesus famously asks his disciples then, he says, who, who do people say that I am? And he says, who do you say that I am? And when they answered that he was the Christ, they, they got it. Because that was the proper conclusion. That was what it was supposed to be. You know, some say you're Elijah the prophet, some say you're this or that. He says, no, you're the Christ. You're it. That's the conclusion we all arrived at. And it's the right one. You know, but the reality is that as we live, we need to be communicating who Jesus is. So then if people look at our lives, who are people going to say Jesus is? What are they going to see as they observe? You know, we have to make sure we're doing it. And we're doing it correctly and we're living as the Lord has called us in obedience and submission to him. We need to make sure that we are in scripture consistently and that we're seeing the character of Christ as we're going through the book of John here and that we respond accordingly. It's interesting in John 5.39, Jesus kind of spoke to the Pharisees and the people about this. He says, you search the scriptures. He says, for in them you think you have eternal life. He says, and these are they which testify of me. And so we go to them because of him. That's why we go to him. Because we see him in every single word in this. We see him it portrayed for us in a way that is second best until we get to see him face to face. So then these people have showed up here and they showed up for one reason and they left with a different understanding of Christ, of, of Jesus. And so then how do people come to faith in Christ? Well, obviously, they see what Jesus did. You know, the works testified of him. But later on, in fact, even in the same chapter, Jesus is going to take, take time here to teach the people, to clarify things for him. It reminds me of Romans ten seventeen, where it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Even before this in chapter 5, he talks all about the word that testifies of him, how the father testifies of him, how his works testify of him. It's all about him, and it's all about that simple gospel that saves people. And that's where we direct people. Uh, and for all of this, these people who thought he was this political Messiah, I still think they were closer to getting who Jesus really was than any of the Pharisees were. Because they didn't get it. They were on the complete opposite end of the spectrum here. Because they were, they were, they were following him and seeing what he was doing. And their minds were being changed about who he was. And some were about to get challenged in their concept of who he is. You know, do we continue to testify of him daily? Are we serving? And not just here in church. That's just one type. But are we out there being active for him? Are we making sure that we're blessing others in him? Go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to end with this. Remember the book of Galatians, it's all about not turning back to the law and you know, not binding ourselves in those things. And, and the idea that in Christ we have the freedom and the liberty to go out and to do the things that please God. That we have the, uh, the ability through the Holy Spirit to go out and serve Him. And right here near the end of the book, Paul's encouraging them. He says this in chapter 6, verse 6. He says, so let him who is taught 
the word, share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so he's encouraging them, go out and be livers of your faith. Right? Go out and don't sow to the flesh, you know, but sow to the spirit where, where you're going to have treasure you know, that, like Jesus says, is not going to rust and moth is not going to eat because it's going to be in heaven. It's going to be spiritual treasure that we continue to do good because we know it, it honors our God and that we bless one another as we do so because that's what we're looking at. And this is what Jesus wanted the disciples to understand that as he went and as he served these people in the middle of all of this, that this is how he was going to call them to serve. And we see that bear out in their lives as we see, uh, see in the book of Acts and we read you know, the, the early history of the church there. And that, that's an example to us. And it's no different. You know, things don't change. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love and, and your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord, and how, Lord, you're, you desire to teach us and how you desire to refine us and you're so patient with us. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we would reciprocate that daily, that we'd be more in love and more faithful and more obedient to you every single day and that you would use us in whatever way you see fit. We thank you for the body that we have here, and we pray that you continue to work in and among us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.